Since the dawn of time, people have been coming up with pastimes to stay entertained, inventing sports, then reinventing sports throughout history. There are pro leagues and the Olympics, championship tournaments, and Little League. But when things get boring, humans get creative, and sports get weird. Going toe-to-toe -to -toe against someone not literal enough for you? Toe wrestling may be your game. Need an extreme sport that blends performance art with a domestic chore? That's what extreme ironing is for. And would boxing make chess more exciting? Done. Totally a thing. There's something for everyone in the world of competitive sports. And as the pursuit of amusement continues to reward us with absurdly entertaining sports, the strangest games you've never heard of often become the most weirdly satisfying in ways that mainstream sports simply can't compare. Our first story is about a centuries-old sport that requires a spectacular amount of fortitude and athleticism, shin-kicking. A perennial crowd-pleaser at the Kostwald Olympic Games, and as literal as it sounds, competitive shin-kicking has endured over 400 years by never losing its original focus, embracing a sense of fun. Our second story is about a form of motorsport where competitors race modified vehicles of the ride-on or self-propelled variety. In short, lawnmower racing. Turning a yard chore into an international sporting event, these competitive races continue to attract all walks of life by capturing the true meaning of sports, blending ambition and expertise with a sense of fun and adventure. This is The Abstract. Look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, Shin Kicking, how a game created to troll 17th century Puritans is still thriving. A great tolerance of pain, but you need to be agile and you need to be fit. In theory, it sounds like it's just, just a rough, but it's not, it's quite skillful. You can, you, there are rules, you can only kick between the ankle and the shin. You have to hold on to the other, and it has to be a fair trip. In other words, you, you kick somebody, you take their leg out, but you can't just push them over, so it's a trip. That was Graham Greenall speaking at 2020's Cotswold Olympics, where he is the chairman. He speaks about what it takes to win the World Shin Kicking Championships, one of the main events at Robert Dover's Cotswold Olympics, an ancient event over 400 years old. Shin kicking, also known as shin diggings or purring, is a combat consisting of two contestants trying to kick each other in the shins in order to force their opponent to the ground. The event was the idea of Dover, who received the blessing of King James I to transform an existing fair into a series of offbeat games modeled on old Olympic ideals of strength and power. But the main point was to have fun. Dover is even said to have been slightly trolling English Puritans who were notably anti-fun. Defined by the mix of tradition and chaos, the Cotswold Olympic Games, dating back to 1612, is a mostly annual festival in Chipping Camden, a small town in England. Here's Graham Greenall again with a bit more on this. Robert Dover. He was actually a Norfolk lawyer, and he came to Chipping Camden after he'd qualified in Lincoln's Inn, and following his brother in, in 1611, and just took over what was, what was originally the, the sort of May Day celebrations and converted it into what he liked to think of as his version of the the Hellenic Olympics. The games include a variety of events like running races, tug of war, sledgehammer throwing, and fighting with swords. 
So how exactly have folk games like these managed to thrive for centuries? Here to talk more about this is Inverse's Emma Batwell, who joins us right now. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Uh, I'm good. Hey, Tanya. So as ridiculous as this might sound and as hysterical as it is to look at, there's got to be something about this game that has stood the test of, what, 400 years? What do you think it is about this that makes it loved in a way that it is at these types of events? Yeah, I think that there's, like so many of these sort of festival games, there is definitely this sort of like spirit and tradition to them. Um, And I think the spirit and tradition of this one is that it is just, A, kind of insane. I think the Daily Mail actually called it Britain's stupidest sport and that there's no... Basically, there are, I mean, there are rules, but they're not particularly finicky. There's no microchip tracking or performance analytics. It's basically a sport that's supposed to sort of fly in the face of constructed rules. And that's actually sort of baked into the history of the whole Cotswold Olympic Games, which is sort of the event that shin kicking happens in. So I spoke to this sports historian who kind of explained that it was sort of around the 1850s and 1890s, we started to see a lot of sports sort of become modernized, like rugby union or organized swimming or, or boxing. And sort of these games kind of reemerged around that time, but they sort of kept it at like the festival level. They never tried to sort of modernize it. It just was the same as it had been essentially since like the 17th century. So pretty basic seeming, you know, you kick the other person in the shins till they fall over, but there's more to it. There are actual rules. I would be curious to learn in case I ever play this after watching it, not out of the realm of possibility, frankly. Um, What else goes into this? How does this game actually break down? Yeah, I mean, there there definitely are rules. So the two competitors sort of face one another um, and they put their arms on each other's shoulders and you have to land your blows between the ankle and the knee. So you, you can't like kick someone in the stomach or something like that. And you can stuff your socks with straw to cushion the blow, um, but that's it. Um, also kind of an interesting fact is that alcohol is actually banned on the hill where this uh, festival usually takes place uh, called Dover's Hill. Um, but people are drinking before and after anyway. Fair. (laughs) I believe that. What I also love is just the kickback to 400 centuries ago and and people embracing it. You know, you see people stuffing their pants with hay as opposed to shin guards or something. Um, The referee is an interesting character, the way people kind of dress up. Aside from the silliness of the sport, that seems to be an essential part of this whole experience, the the history. Yeah, I think there are sort of like little surprises and just sort of little details about the sport that make it sort of so much more special than it even looks because it kind of looks, it looks really silly when you're watching it. But there actually is a referee who carries a stick and that stick sort of falls in between the players. And once that stick is removed, the game sort of starts. And um, that referee is actually called a stickler. So there's sort of these, these fun little details that kind of make it really come to life. So who wins at this? Is there an ideal shin kicker? <laughs> I mean, 400 years later, have we developed a, a skill set? I guess it's really about pain tolerance. I mean, long matches can drag on for for a really long time. The short ones can last about 10 seconds before someone goes down. So there's this guy, Adam Miller, um, and he's won multiple of these uh, events. And basically, he's just like a really big guy. And he eventually uh, had to retire just because nobody could beat him. So I think at a certain point, it's just about like how much pain can you impart and how much pain can you take? Yeah. Again, this is... 
part of Inverse's Not Sports series where we explore unique competitive cultures that are weird yet oddly compelling. Emma's got a lot more to read on this at Inverse.com. Emma, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. Every year, about 500 United States Lawnmower Racing Association competitors come together in a series of lawnmower races at the local, state, and national level, proving what was once a gimmick is now an extreme sporting event. Up now, a veteran racer explains what it takes to zip at 60 miles per hour on your lawnmower. All the marbles on the line, FX Twin. And as low as long as these machines are, they did have to start out as lawnmowers, right, Bruce? That's right. They're lawnmowers. You can tell the original lawnmower engine block, but they are turning wicked horsepower. And they're in the final few corners here. With the weather, with the bales, nothing's going to stop Ryan Kerr from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, to come home the victor here in the first ever Factor Experimental Twin National Championship race. That was from the United States Lawnmower Racing Association's very first championship race for the factory experimental twin class of lawnmower racing. Every year, about 500 USLRA competitors come together in a series of races at the local, state, and national level. However, the very first American lawnmower race is thought to have happened as early as 1975 in 12 Mile, Indiana. And for the current president of the racing association, Kerry Evans, it all started 25 years ago in 1995 when a customer pulled up outside his engine dealership and asked him to pimp out his lawnmower. I uh, had a guy pull up from the front and said, we're starting a lawnmower racing club and I need somebody to build me a lawnmower motor. And I'm thinking lawnmower racing, huh? I hadn't heard of that one yet. And uh, I said, hmm, lawnmower racing, come back in two weeks and I'll have you a motor built. That was a mistake because I've been doing it ever since. And usually once you see a race, you're hooked. Once you actually attend a race and that vibration off the engine kind of hits you in the chest and you see that lawnmower come streaking down the track, it's like, man, I can't believe a lawnmower can go that fast. Over 20 years later, racing association competitors come together in a series of races at the local, state, and national level. Some top racers will spend around $10,000 improving their machines and are known to put in weekend hours to get enough seat time on the track. Here's more from Kerry Evans. Some of the racers don't have local tracks and they're in the backyards trying to practice and do things that they want to, you know, to, to try to get into competitive sports. I mean, we're, we're not on every street corner or every city. Like in our national circuit, we have people that will travel in some of our national events. They'll travel 14, 16, 18, 20 hours. What was once a gimmick has transformed into a legit sporting event that fuses both engineering and driving skill. The art of lawnmower racing, blending creativity, ambition, and at least some humility, is a sporting event like no other, one that's particularly exhilarating and fulfilling to its enthusiasts. Each machine kind of represents that individual. I mean, especially if he's built everything himself from the ground up. I think it's just individualism that comes in and the self-satisfaction. Inverse's Emma Batwell has become our resident expert on all things lawnmower racing and joins us right now. Hey, Emma, how's it going? Hey, Tanya. I'm good. How are you? Good. So I made a point to check all of this out on YouTube before we spoke today and 
I was in for a good 30 to 45 minutes. It really is this spectacle that draws you in. What's the official story behind how this all even came to be? Yeah, so um, the United States Lawnmower Racing Association is the sort of the governing body for lawnmower racing in the U.S. So the first official lawnmower race that was sponsored by this governing body happened um, in 1992 outside of Chicago on April Fool's Day, actually. But then the very first lawnmower race to ever happen actually happened 29 years earlier in 12 Mile, Indiana, and that's still kind of this marquee event. Um, It's a pretty famous lawnmower race that happens every year. And again, this looks official. You know, it's lawnmower racing, but this is clearly an official sporting event decades later. It's got local chapters, governing bodies. You know, what are the scopes of these competitions look like? Yeah, so there are 10 different classes. Some of these classes are defined by age. You have to be 18 um, unless you have parental permission. But most of the details of the classes come down to the speed of the mower and how much you can kind of mess with that mower to make it almost like a race car, honestly. Um, So there's this stock class, which is basically like a lawnmower that's basically off the shelf. Um, And that can go between six and eight miles per hour. Um, And then you have, this is kind of my favorite category, the experimental class, which are mowers that can go as fast as 60 miles an hour. So in any class, you're, you're taking the blades off. And, but I think a lot of the bulk of the gamesmanship in lawnmower racing comes with comes from the um sort of the mechanic side as with a lot of car racing i mean there's a lot of strategy involved in car racing too but here you really are having to do it almost all yourself although there are teams of sort of a mechanic and a driver it's a very specific skill here the skill set is an interesting mix of engineering and driving it seems like it would be a very specific type of person that can serve as an mvp here how, how do people get good at this ultimately yeah because they're sort of the driving side and the building side there are two people who really stand out here so the first one is chuck miller he's a racer from marion ohio so he was at that first lawnmower race in 1992 and he's competed in every national championship since then he's won a lot of them <laughs> he's in the hall of fame and he's just generally one of those like hyper pretty a famous person in the world of lawnmower racing. And then on the engineering side, there's Bobby Cleveland, who is actually credited with building the world's fastest lawnmower. So in 2010, he did a test run out in Utah and that mower went 96.529 miles per hour. Wow. And what's more is all the time, energy, passion, money that goes into this. This is one of those things you know, if you're in, you're in big, it seems. Yeah. So I think that um, I spoke to Carrie Evans, who is the current president of the uh, United States Lawnmower Racing Association. And he's kind of on the building side. He doesn't drive, but he's sort of, from his perspective, that um, sort of there are the basic rules of making a mower go fast. Um, You're always messing with the bolts, sort of the belts and pulleys within the mower itself. But a lot of it is sort of about especially in this sort of factory experimental class. It's where the only requirement is that you keep the mower's frame intact and the engines, and then the rest you kind of can go to town with. So Evans has sort of developed his own style over the years. He says that he likes to have everything kind of clean and in place. And I mean, some of these top racers will spend like 10 grand improving their machines, like pouring time and energy into it. So, I mean, it's it's a serious thing. Good stuff. You can check out more video in the full article at inverse.com. Thanks so much, Emma. Yeah, thanks, Tanya.
Head to Inverse.com to read more of our Not Sports series. You can click on the link in the show notes for that story and all others we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.